In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The title of this talk is Tense Waiting. It's a phrase that comes from Luther. And we'll explicate it a little bit. If you've ever gone on a long road trip with small children, your own, you know the question that first gets asked sometime between five minutes and 20 minutes out, and then gets asked every five minutes thereafter. Are we there yet? No, not yet. How long? Your ingenuity is tested and retested as you seek yet more answers for that same question as it is asked and re-asked again and again. Are we there yet? No. How long? Why don't you trust us is what you want to say to your children. Don't you have faith that we're taking you to a wonderful place to visit grandmother and that you're going to have a wonderful time when we get there? If you grew up in the age in which I grew up, you got into the big Mercury that was our family car, there were no places to plug in a DVD or a set of headphones when you went on a long journey. Just the slosh, slosh, slosh of that suspension as you made your way. And that sense of being rather confined. You could only look out the window. You were intensely aware of the passage of time because you had nothing to distract you from it. Yet you had this hope that was always awakened that when you went to grandmother's house, you received grace. It's always grandmother who gives grace. Your parents are there to enforce the law, but your grandparents' privilege is to simply affirm and give treats and give grace. And with those treats comes wisdom and the sense that someone really sees something in you, no matter what you're able to do to meet your parents' expectations. That thinking starts so early. Are we there yet? Luther refers to this as the most essential aspect of the human condition. Not where are we or even where have we, from where have we come, but what are we waiting for? What do we hope for? What do we fear? Now, if today we're looking at when do we get to grandmother's house in my little story, if we look at the text, it's more about just you wait until your father gets home. That's very much where John the Baptist leaves us when he gathers that crowd together who are waiting for the anointed one, the one who will vindicate Israel, who is on his way. You will remember that Jerusalem was to be the shining city on the hill, if you like, the New York or Chicago. Uh, place that drew people from all over the globe to its universal values of justice for all and grace and mercy. Well, Israel has ceased to exist and Jerusalem has been through some tough times and it's looking a little more like the red states there than the shining city on the hill. There's a sense that whatever was, it ain't that way anymore. 
a sense of utter insignificance to the inhabitants who face one after another invading army who take away their rights and run things the way they want them run and take their money, if you like, somewhere else as well. It sounds very familiar. And the one feeling they have all about this is anger. Uh, but when the invaders flex their muscle, the anger is fortified with fear. Anger and fear together are a pretty formidable diet. But they make one look very much then to the hope of relief and the hope that when the release comes, the rescuer will show a bit of attitude and punish those who have put them in such a miserable condition. What John does is remind them that some of this misery is due to their own doing. That when he comes, he's going to be looking to see them hard at work or they will be thrown like chaff into the unquenchable fire. He's not talking about their immortal souls here, but he is talking about a immortal fire that's gonna very much cut into their project, which is their promise, that they will not just be the city on the hill, they will be like the stars shining in the sky, numberless, and their progeny will be limited if many are being taken out of action. What is the nature then of the work they must be found doing? Praying, I guess, studying the scriptures? Uh, actually, no, that doesn't come into it at all. The work of justice is what we would call it. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving to the poor, being fair to everyone else, giving everyone his or her due. What they've got coming, and if not, you know what you've got coming. Well, there's a lot of scurrying now to sweep a lot of dust under the carpet. And we like to think of this as the last flexing of the muscles of the law before Jesus brings in a universal realm of grace. It's not quite that simple. According to Jesus, John is right on message. Jesus says in Luke's gospel, as he unrolls the scroll in the synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The problem is those in Jerusalem think they are the poor. In some way they are, but the mandate to Jerusalem was to be the source of all of these things to the other nations around them than benefactors, if you like, to the unworthy who needed what Jerusalem had and was there to give. Jesus reinforces the message of John. He tells the rich man who would follow him to first sell all and give the money to the poor. He tells the disciples that the littlest and the least are to be served as if they were the Lord himself. And yes, when the Lord comes, he will want to find his servants serving, doing what he has bidden them to do. And there are plenty of parables about that. This is again not how the people of Jesus' time were looking at things. They were looking out, but only for themselves. Fair enough, we know what they had suffered. We understand their hope for this strong man, this hero to come, and set them free, drive out their captors, restore the land, the land of promise, and let the milk and the honey flow once again. Why does he delay this hero? Who knows? But we know it's about time that he came. 
and we know what they're looking for. They bustle then to put their best foot forward to look indeed very busy, very industrious, very much the type A over-the-top achievers that they were not. Do they imagine maybe when they encounter his presence that their last-minute efforts will have been enough? That when the Lord Jesus, which is the anointed one as much as they know of him, will ask if, they've, if they have fed the poor and clothed the naked, rather cared for the poor, clothed the naked, fed the hungry, got that right, what might his response be? Well, we know what they're hoping. It's what we all hope. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Looks great here. Why, you might have done a little more here and there, but nobody's perfect. You did better than that lot over there. You did your best. I can do the rest. Run along now. This really didn't turn out so bad after all, did it? Now, good job. You can imagine themselves giving the high five to one another. Well, Jesus lets us know what his response will be to our best efforts. The Pharisee stood and prayed to himself like this. God, I thank you but I'm not like the rest. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'm really doing not so badly, am I? But the tax collector, standing far away, <clears throat> wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this one will be justified rather than the other. What Jesus waits to hear is not our litany of triumphs. He waits to hear our confession, our list of failures. Failures that come about from trying and trying and trying for the best and knowing that you are falling short. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Like the prodigal son, we return to the father expecting, indeed, asking for justice. We're not asking for a free pass. We're not asking for a gold star for being such good little boys and girls. We're expecting the worst, and we're being prepared to say to God, and I agree with you, Lord, I've let you down, I am an un, 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 unprofitable servant. Do with me as you will, and in that at least I will find peace. And you remember the father's response to the prodigal son. He runs to him and embraces him and clothes his rag, his robe with his his rags with his finest robes. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who expects wrath receives instead mercy. He who is prepared for divine vengeance is the one who receives love. Now this is tough language. I want to do away with the God of wrath altogether, or at least hang him safely among all those others who apparently don't get God as well as I do. But the one who strides into God's presence with a sense of entitlement, of being owed it, of having it coming, will get it. As we say, in the end, we don't want God's justice. 
Gerard Ferdy writes, God encounters us. He will come to us, all of us. He will come into our face, either as wrath or as love. There is no third possibility. The overwhelming point, however, is that his intention is to be there for you. That's his promise, and he does not lie. His promise and his joy is to have mercy to forgive. And God wants to take that wrath and turn it around and show that his proper work, as Luther says, his opus proprium, is to show mercy, not to give out judgment and wrath. But you can't just claim mercy. As Ferdy says elsewhere, if God's work is to show mercy, that's also God's problem, which is how to actually have mercy on those who will not have it. The problem is not that God is not in the divine depths of his being loving and merciful. The favor of God does not have to be purchased by the suffering and death of Jesus. This is not debt and repayment. God cannot and does not need to be bought even by the blood of Jesus. It is not that Jesus has to die before God can be forgiving. God, out of love and mercy, sends Jesus to forgive. We don't want for forgiveness. Why ask for forgiveness if you never make mistakes? If everything and anything that goes wrong is really someone else's fault? How do you get through to someone like that? How does God get through? He doesn't. God sends Jesus to forgive. We will not have it, so we kill him. Our culture is in trouble when what we set up is the best, is really the worst, and we can't tell the difference anymore. We are in a very dark time. The economy is booming. The stock market was going great. You know what I mean. Things are going our way, and we'll put up with everything and anyone who'll keep it that way. That's our bottom line. Our comfort, our prosperity. The poor and the hungry and the outcast and the oppressed, that's someone else's problem. Didn't they make that problem for themselves? What do we owe them? That's the law speaking. That's justice. God is saying to the one who shows no mercy, no mercy will be given. Don't come looking for it if you discover you need it. If you don't need it, fine. Here in this great land right now, we're not looking for mercy. We don't need it. We're not planning to need it any time soon. If we don't need it, we probably don't want it. And if we don't want it, we won't ask for it. And if we don't ask for it, we won't get it. That's what all of this comes down to. And that's what repentance is all about. God will give us everything. He will give us everything through his forgiveness. But if we don't ask for forgiveness, we don't get any of the rest that he has to offer. How do you know that you need forgiveness in order to ask for it? You need to do one thing. 
It's what we've said from the very beginning. The one thing he commands, what we said way back at the beginning of the service, I'm almost done, don't worry. He asks us to love, period. To love him, to love our neighbor, who is our neighbor. As we grow in love of him, our embrace of what neighbor means grows and grows. It grows from those who like us, to those who are like us, to those who aren't like us, to those who don't like us. It grows to the entire universe, to this planet, to all the suffering there. And as we ache out of the love that God gives us for the suffering of humanity, none of which is our fault, we're moved by love to pray, I don't care whose fault it is. Can we not give mercy? Can we not show your love even to those who don't know how to ask for it by our acts of mercy? Is there anything better to win the hearts of the people who don't know you than by acts of mercy? We do not ask that for ourselves, but we ask to do that for one another. Let's pray at this time of year when so many of us are aware of the people we love. And let's start there with those we love. Let's go back to the way we were as children riding in that car to grandmothers. Let's ask as adults, whatever happened to that? When did we stop, stop driving to grandmothers? And grandmothers ask, when did our children and their children stop coming to see us? When did husbands and wives begin to draw apart into mutual detente? And when did parents begin to lose their children by the distractions that so corrupt our world? in which waiting for anything is apparently impossible. Everything must be given, everything must be there for us right now, whether we deserve it or not, whether we need it or not. Gracious Father, help us in our loves to love as you love, to love without looking for reward, to love without looking for thanks, to love and keep loving, keep pouring out love, no matter how we are hurt by those who love us. Give us that love, because that's your love. And when we have that love, we will know how unworthy we are at bringing that love about, how desperately we need your help, your grace, your power, and your strength to do it, and we'll, kneel, we'll learn to turn to you when we need love and when we need to love, to turn to you not because we've got it coming to us, but because we don't, but because we need that love more than anything in the world. And worthy or not, we turn to you to receive it. Amen. Please.